Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Addicted to Recovery, the interactive memoir. I'm Tara Boyce, and this is my podcast where I talk about recovery, addiction, mental health, and I read from my memoir about my own struggles along those lines. Many, many years of relapse and rehab and a whole lot of other misadventures. And at this point in the book, I'm still only like 22 years old. There's still a good 13 years of suffering ahead of me, though I have to say I start to remember less and less as the years go on. It's called the interactive memoir because I really don't want to be talking at you here. My main expertise is really just in the fact that I failed so miserably at getting sober for so many years. So I really like to get your questions, comments, feedback, because it helps me shape the direction I'm going to take with the podcast. I remember once I just went completely outside the story and did a two-parter on 12-step recovery and wasn't planning to do that. That was all you. And again, this week there was a question I received that really made me consider the way I've been representing myself in my memoir so far. I'll read you this question and comment from Anne. She wrote, It sounds like you're beating yourself up a lot. Were you always really the bad guy in these relationships? I would think in any pairing, both people usually contribute to why the relationship doesn't work. Well, the uh, joke answer to that is, if you think I'm bad now, wait until I talk about the next guy. But more seriously, I, I think you answered your own question in that, I mean, of course I wasn't always awful. I mean, sometimes I was downright delightful. There's a reason why people stuck around for at least the time that they did. And of course I hurt people, especially when I was drinking heavily, but people hurt me too. And not everything that went wrong in my family and my friendships and my romantic relationships was all about my drinking. But as this is a cautionary tale, memoir about the ravages of alcoholism, of course I am going to emphasize those damages a little bit more. And my side of it is really the only one that I feel comfortable airing out, really. And also, self-deprecation is just a kind of humorous default for me. And of course I want this to be entertaining for you, otherwise you'll stop listening. But I do admit maybe there are other ways to go about that than just constantly taking jabs at myself. But it probably comes off as me being harsher on me because just ethically I don't feel right about calling out anybody else. I have an almost visceral aversion to self-victimization now or blaming other people. I feel like it's almost a trend now to point to some trauma, and I use that word kind of begrudgingly because I feel like it's so overused now, it doesn't really mean anything. It's often just used as a stand-in for getting hurt by people and life like everybody does. But that's what I used to do when I couldn't stay sober. I used to process and repackage all the ways that other people had hurt me and almost wear it as a badge of honor of trauma. And yes, people hurt me, but as long as that's what I was focusing on, I was just reinforcing my own rationalizations and cementing this idea of me as a victim. And it was incredibly disempowering 
for me. So I could take shots at any of my exes, my friends, my family members. I mean, there was a lot of stuff in the memoir about my family that I just decided to cut out because it's not my place to stand in judgment of anybody. I can only be responsible for my own behavior. And I know I did also bring out the worst in people quite a bit as well. I am involved in 12-step recovery, and a big part of that was just taking ownership of my part of what happened in my life. So there are a lot of sections here that could be a lot juicier, I suppose, if I wasn't making these sort of editorial choices, but eh, here we are. However, I recognize that maybe I've fallen too far into this really false dichotomy of, well, if I wasn't the victim, then I must have been the villain. I think there is an important nuance that I haven't addressed, that if we are in active addiction or struggling with our mental health or Heck, even in recovery, there can be this really destructive cognitive framing that occurs in which you think everything that goes wrong is your fault, and that your addiction or mental illness makes you the liability, the grenade, or just the disposable one in any relationship. And that's also really disempowering and has this possible side effect of convincing everyone in your life that... You're the black sheep, the punching bag, the nexus of dysfunction for everyone else to just funnel their shit through. When I got to a point when I really believed I was unlovable, that was also a point in which I didn't really see a point in getting better at all. I identified with the symptoms of my alcoholism, the consequences of acting out, and I stopped recognizing there was a scared, hurting person behind it that was still deserving of basic human dignity. That was almost the point of no return for me, and I honestly think I wouldn't be here if it hadn't been for certain people just insisting on loving me even after I decided I was human refuse and after several people had treated me that way as well. And that wasn't okay. I acted imperfectly, sometimes really terribly in certain relationships, and I know that wasn't okay. I own it, but it still doesn't make it okay what other people did to me. For a long time, I believed it it didn't matter how other people treated me because I had sinned so terribly, people could treat me like garbage and I deserved it. And I'm not condoning that. No matter how much I drank or what mistakes I made, I was still never garbage and didn't deserve to be treated as such, and nobody does. But that's actually not going to happen for a while. I'm not referencing Roberto or Leo. They weren't those people. They, though also human being and flawed, were generally lovely and a heck of a lot more respectful than I was. And though I'm telling my side and taking ownership of that, I'm also not here to be like a defense lawyer for my own bad behavior. But I do owe it to myself and my recovery not to constantly endorse my own worthlessness. So yeah, I'm going to call myself out on my bad behavior and I probably will make fun of myself a lot. 
But I can't hate the person I was or the person I am. I need to own her mistakes and sometimes have a laugh about it because that's the way I process it. But I hope that doesn't come off as scorn or derision, really, and that whatever phase you're in in your life, even if you're still making some mistakes that you don't have that scorn and derision for yourself, because honestly, that never helped me get better either. So thank you again so much for that question, Anne. I really do appreciate any questions or feedback that makes me think about things a little differently, makes me reconsider the mental filters I might have on at any given point. I mean, really, in a sense, I'm kind of crowdsourcing editors. (laughs) But nothing makes me feel more like everything I went through has value than when I hear from one of you. And once again, there is the Facebook group, which is just the name of that podcast, or you can just send me a message at interactivememoir at gmail.com, or hey, just find me on Facebook and send me a message there. And I think I mentioned this on a previous podcast, but since there are some issues with not being able to use PayPal on the buymeacoffee.com slash recovery site, I've also added a link to donate to my PayPal directly. It really does help take a little pressure off me and focus on being able to spend more time doing this. And if any of you are interested in getting to know a different side of me, a kind of more lighthearted, geeky side, I did a podcast with the Ryan Stick Show, and you can find that on YouTube called Nerdy Things That Make Us Cry, where I just kind of talk about my love of all things video games, anime, Sailor Moon, and the way that, weirdly, those things actually help me in my recovery a lot, too. So for any fellow nerds out there, check it out. The link for that is in the show notes. All right, so enough preamble. Let's get into the chapter. Edgy, cool, and tortured. After I'd spent about a year dodging consequences of my drinking, or rather, having Leo shield me from them, I decided I was ready to start my life. I applied to the creative writing program at Concordia University as a mature student. I like the sound of that. Mature student. Oh, the wisdom I could impart at the seasoned age of 22 to all those fresh out of grade 12 kids transferring from other provinces. Though, to clarify, mature student just means over age 21, not a person demonstrating any emotional intelligence or life skills. Nobody tells you, or at least no one in my life told me, that... Higher education in an artistic discipline is a fine idea if you just want to learn and network or otherwise financially autonomous, but it does not guarantee that you will become a capital A author just by virtue of having studied creative writing. You will not necessarily be inducted into the secret club of writing jobs, agents, and publishing houses. Your acceptance letter should come with a disclaimer to manage your expectations and enjoy your pretensions while they last. I thought I'd go to university, and in return for my time and tuition, they would give me a life. I absolutely 
agonized over my application, picking the 15 pages that were meant to represent me as a writer, printing out every short story and poem and novella I'd ever written, categorizing them by genre, verbal complexity, emotional resonance, humor, of which, sadly, I had very little at the time making piles of possible poems, picking a portion of my unfinished novel, then dashed the whole selection, developing contempt for every word on every page, deciding I'd just have to write 15 pages of new material because everything I'd ever written was complete rubbish. Except it turned out I couldn't really seem to write much anymore. I hadn't written more than a few emotionally indulgent poems about boys in years. I'd begun to link drinking and writing, and I fancied myself glamorous, scribing dramatic monologues under a tree with a bottle of wine, or at my computer with a few gin and tonics, words flowing as the liquor washed through me. Except that wasn't how it worked. Now, by the point that I was sufficiently buzzed to think myself unblocked as a writer, I was also kind of stupid and not too adept with coherent sentences, let alone compelling narratives. The best I could manage to muster was some embarrassingly opaque free verse poetry. Even I didn't understand the next day what I'd meant by all the ostentatious words crammed ungracefully into lines. I toyed with the idea that maybe I'd unlocked something that was too esoteric for sober me to even understand, or something, though eventually I did have to admit it was mostly just nonsense. Unreadable, really, and certainly unsubmittable. I was all dried up, even while I was soaked in booze, but it it couldn't be the alcohol. After all, I'd successfully written drunk before once or twice. It must be my boyfriend's fault for sapping my creativity with this relationship normalcy. I actually believed Leo was responsible for my lack of artistic output because much of my writing had come from a place of fantasy, of wish fulfillment, of unrequited romantic desire, and having settled into an actual long-term relationship and thinking it rather impolite to actively idolize and worship other guys, I had no inspiration. And it was somehow Leo's fault that I could only be creatively juiced by fawning over emotionally unavailable men, and oh, the sacrifice of so much terrible poetry I was making by committing to the doldrum of couplehood. And he was just so needy. He was always wanting to spend time with me, and always at night, which was when my creativity flowed, so I just never had any time to myself to write. This was also utter bullshit. I could have always said, no, I would like to stay home to write when he wanted to hang out, but I knew hanging out usually meant a partially subsidized excuse to drink, and as it turned out, I was pretty damn needy, too. I just convinced myself I wasn't by random acts of rebellion like barroom flirtations with other men and occasionally withholding affection as a kind of power play, and I don't know who I was trying to prove what to. 
Also, when I was alone and had every opportunity to write, I didn't. I didn't want to. I wanted to watch America's Next Top Model or allow the ever-expanding internet to siphon away my midnight oil. The mid-2000s were exciting times for the internet. Things like MySpace were starting to happen. There were all these quirky and creepy flash videos like Salad Fingers and Charlie the Unicorn on a website called Daily Motion that I could watch over and over and over. There was BitTorrent and LimeWire letting me download obscure Radiohead B-sides and fan-sub Japanese anime series they certainly didn't have at Blockbuster. Any writing I did do was emails and letters to my friends or just banal MSN messenger chats. The computer was no longer a safe space for creative output. So most of my submission ended up being comprised of things I'd written between the ages of 17 and 20, poems with titles like Lament of a Defective Assembly Line Android and Metaphysical Infidelity. And, of course, a few pages from my almost-finished novel that had been almost-finished for about mm, three years that I hadn't touched in about the same amount of time. It wasn't even so much a novel as an attempt to exercise my own demons through prose with a character with a different name who was pretty much otherwise everything like me. Except her main issue was an eating disorder and the alcoholism was kind of secondary. See? Not really me at all. Oh, and the character in the book had a delinquent older brother. I didn't. But just the fact that I had written about 300 pages of anything allowed me to feel like I was still a writer. But my submission was enough to get me into the creative writing program at Concordia University, a program I'd been told only 10% of applicants were accepted into. I could finally feel like a real girl. Now, when someone asked me who I was... I'd have an answer. I was a writer. Now, when I asked myself who I was, I had an answer. I'm a writer. I'd sort out that pesky business of not actually being able to write anymore when it came down to it, right? Even at the best of times, my sense of identity was unstable. Even though to an outsider, I seemed to have a lot of personality, passions, interests. Internally, I was always desperately seeking something external to latch onto to legitimize me. Going to theater school gave me permission to be, well, dramatic and leverage what were otherwise overblown emotions. Having been in a relationship for over a year signaled that I must be a worthwhile, lovable person. Now, getting into a writing program validated my need to be told I was intelligent, that I had something of value to say. I had no intrinsic sense of my own worth. I needed to be told who I was to feel like there was anyone there at all. Of course, alcohol was holding me back, but it was also my strongest ally because it was the only thing that bridged this gap. In social interactions, relationships, performances, artistic output, it allowed me to believe I was a person who could call herself an actor, a writer, a delightful girlfriend, a friend, whatever the role called for. Alcohol had become the true dictator of my identity. 
it fundamentally chose for me the type of person I believed I could be, other than just a person who drinks too much. My roles were limited to those that I could pull off while still drinking. For example, the soft socialite surgeon or booze-guzzling biomedical engineer were not convincing couplings. The harrowed, hard-drinking writer, however, that was a role that I could play, and I was ready for the world of academia to make me a star. Though that unlikely ambition didn't unfold, starting university was a welcome reprieve from my increasing dependence and resentment of that dependence on Leo. It disturbed me greatly that the main thing I had going on in my life was hanging around with my boyfriend. Though my drinking had somewhat plateaued in the first year of our relationship, and with that, the acceptance of how much I did drink... I started to push my limits. One night, Leo had rented us a hotel room for his work office party so we could, you know, get romantic after the event. I drank everything in sight at the actual event. I mean, come on, open bar. I then made inappropriate, amorous advances on him in front of his co-workers and boss, then passed out when we got back to the hotel room. At his cousin's wedding, I also, well drank everything in sight because, come on, open bar, made inappropriate amorous advances on him in front of his family, and had to get pulled out of a bathroom stall. When Leo's parents went on vacation and we were supposed to be playing house all romantically, Leo caught me rummaging through his parents' liquor cabinet after our wine ran out. I mean, come on, they weren't there. It might as well have been an open bar. And somehow he just wasn't into my amorous advances anymore that night. I was starting to suspect that Leo just didn't get me, that he wasn't edgy, cool, or tortured enough to really appreciate me. My classmates in creative writing would understand how edgy, cool, and tortured I was. I just knew it. Maybe I'd even find a new boyfriend who was also edgy, cool, and tortured, who didn't think it was inappropriate or disrespectful to fondle him in front of his cousins. Sure, I was going there to learn, but I was also going to be perceived by others the way I wanted to be perceived to reinvent myself. All my decisions were crafted to project an image of myself I wanted others to embrace, and then maybe it would be true. The first writing assignment I workshopped in my fiction class was a chapter from my <clears throat> novel, a chapter in which the narrator, reeling from a devastating breakup, hurdles herself into alcoholic drinking and then ends up in rehab. Funny how I was writing things as fiction that hadn't happened to me yet, but were about to. Was it prediction? Manifestation? Who knows, but I figured a story about rehab, that would certainly make everyone think I was edgy, cool, and tortured. I didn't even bother to mask my breath if I came back from swigging wine in the bathroom at break, because that's what someone who was edgy, cool, and tortured would do, and because I wanted them to talk, 
about me. I imagined them having whispered discussions about me in the hallway, wondering if I had indeed been to rehab myself, because that would just be so me, given how edgy, cool, and tortured I was. That was clearly back when I thought going to rehab was a glamorous process. I would indeed learn how unlikely and sensationalized my story chapter was. Well, actually, my writing professor told me as much, and also that the chapter didn't hold up as a standalone piece. Well, duh, it was from the end of my novel. Other than managing my image, I'd chosen a segment of the longer piece because... Uh, I wasn't writing anything new? What did he know, anyways? He lavished praise on these boring stories about things like a man trying to teach his son to fish and a woman riding around on a bicycle thinking about her dead mother. None of that sentimental schlock for me. I wrote about the real things, the nitty-gritty things like drinking and drugs. My teacher was clearly not edgy, cool, or tortured enough to understand my brilliance. So who cares what he thought? I certainly didn't. I only cared about what Lauren thought. Lauren was clearly the real cool girl in the class. She talked casually about things like hanging backstage with Feist at a concert and accidentally ending up with this modeling gig... She was the type of person who just got invited to places and was asked to do things just by virtue of her charisma. And of course, she'd already been published, even though her work was wildly derivative of Chuck Palahniuk, but whatever, he was so hot back then. Screw literary devices, what I needed to learn in university was how to be more like Lauren. I studied her mannerisms, the way she stood, the way she smiled, almost laughing when she talked, regardless of what she was talking about, that was both unsettling and compelling when paired with the relaxed cadence of her voice, and the way she let her hair dangle in her face without bothering to adjust it. I practiced these things like I was auditioning for the role of Lauren in a play. Oh, really? I think I was just looking for someone to be who wasn't me. And it was my way of working through my terror that I was going to lose my actual best friend and soul sister, Andy. Since we were teenagers, she'd been fascinated with Norwegian black metal, a rather niche genre of music, collecting imported vinyls and CDs, but now... Thanks to the internet, she had been exchanging amorous and unscrupulous emails with a real live Norwegian black metal drummer. She was smitten like I'd never seen her before. This drummer was planning to travel all the way from Norway just to meet her and, of course, audition for my approval, which I was loath to give because I was horrified by the possibility that he might whisk her off to Norway and away from me, but nah. I I mean, people don't actually do that kind of thing in real life. They don't meet some guy in a band on the internet and then go move to a different continent. I was hoping after they met and kind of got it out of their system, he'd just go back to banging on the drums and leave my best friend alone. But then... Andy started talking seriously about packing up and going to Norway to give their romance a real shot. 
My fear of abandonment activated, and my response was to lash out. Such a cliché really pushed people away before they had the chance to leave me. Andy remained the only person I felt safe around without alcohol, but no longer. Instead of huddling in a smoky deli discussing our latest theory of reality or debating the ethics of the socioeconomic conditions of women in the 1960s or singing along to Les Miserables' 10th anniversary concert as we were wont to do, I instead just wanted to take her out to dingy pool halls, get drunk, and make a big display of carrying on with other guys who were not my boyfriend, which I knew would make her uncomfortable and exasperated with me. She'd have to pull me off some random creep's lap, fed up with fending off the random creep's friend's advances. If she called me out, like a script from a CW teen drama, I'd say something like, Well, what do you care? You're leaving anyways. I guess I'm not your concern anymore. These spectacles were, however unconsciously, a cry for help, of saying, Look! Look how unstable I am. Look at how willing I am to sabotage my romantic relationship because we both know that has an expiry date on it anyways. And then, if you're gone, I'll be left with nothing. You're the only thing between me and becoming completely unhinged. We're supposed to be in it together. For keeps. We're supposed to have boys that come and go, but we'll eventually end up living together in a cozy apartment with a pet lobster because you're my forever person and I love you and I don't know what I'll do without you. But I didn't say that. I couldn't. I felt like her decision to pursue a relationship in another country was a betrayal, that it was somehow all about me, that I wasn't enough. My worst fears had been confirmed, that the one relationship I had felt safe enough to be vulnerable in was still going to hurt me. Well, we'll see about that. Think you can hurt me? I can hurt me a hell of a lot better than anyone else can. Just watch. I'll show you. Well, that just about wraps up that chapter. Don't forget to tune in next time when things start to get really bad. Anyways, in this case and in many other cases in my life, it wasn't necessarily the event itself so much as my interpretation of it that did the most damage. Obviously, my best friend didn't design an international romance to hurt me or abandon me. I expected, however, that... Everyone should just revolve all their life decisions around me, or it was proof that they didn't really care. The idea that I wasn't the only important thing in someone's life translated into me feeling that I wasn't important at all, and never had been. I was so consumed by the ways I thought she was letting me down, I didn't even consider all the ways I was letting her down. I'd been letting everyone down, really, because... I had been choosing alcohol over everyone in my life the last few years, yet I still expected everyone should put me first. One of the biggest problems about making every relationship about you and your needs, even in the best of scenarios, no one is equipped to be everything for another person, and then you always have a reason to feel like a victim. 
No one was responsible for whether or not I decided to go on full self-destruct mode. Not Andy, not Roberto, not Leo, not my family, but, oh, they were easy targets for blame. In this self-centeredness, I, I missed opportunities to be the kind of friend, family member, girlfriend that those people deserved as well. But as long as I was the one keeping score and uh, I was a really biased bookkeeper, my relationships remained stuck in this resentment and entitlement. I was too self-absorbed to even recognize how self-absorbed I was. And I'm not saying that in self-judgment, but more just in sadness that I couldn't find my way out of this mirrored maze of my mind to actually attend to what my friend was grappling with at that time, or many other times when I needed to be a friend as much as I needed someone to be mine. I I never thought that I could be self-centered and self-concerned when I was also filled with so much self-loathing, you know, I'd be like, well, I don't even care about myself. Look at what I'm doing to myself. But now I realize that even if you hate what you're staring at in the proverbial mirror, you're still spending all your time staring at the mirror, thinking about how much you hate what you're looking at. It's still something I struggle with today. It's improved a lot. I mean, removing the alcohol was key. Therapy was key. 12-step recovery is key. But there are still times when I get stuck, kind of repeating the same things on loop in my head. And I know one of the best solutions to that is to just get outside myself, talk to someone, do something for someone else. And most of the time, I, I know what the right thing to do is, and I just don't do it. But at least I know that I know what I should do, and that I'm not doing it. which is a heck of a lot better than not even realizing I'm doing it in the first place. I don't remember exactly where I heard this, but I'm pretty sure it was in a Tony Robbins seminar that our most profound human need is to be consistent with who we already believe that we are, to be consistent with our self-image, and the process of changing a highly ingrained self-image is sometimes one of the greatest challenges of our whole lives, So sometimes I'm going to revert back to my default programming. But at least now, sometimes I don't. And maybe one day, most of the time, I won't. And I'm trying to be a bit more patient with myself because as I said at the beginning of this podcast, shame never really made me get any better. And I hope you have that same kind of compassion for yourself because you have so much more to offer the world than you even know. Until next time.